Section sixteen of the Shuans by Honore de Balzac. Translated by Ellen Marriage. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bruce Peary. Chapter three A. A day without a morrow. As the final events of the story were largely determined by the character of the country in which they took place, a detailed description of it is unavoidable, for otherwise the catastrophe will be difficult to understand. The town of Fougere is partly situated on a mass of schistous rock that might have fallen forward from the hills that close round the western end of the wide valley of the Coenon, each of which is differently named in different places round about. A narrow ravine with the little stream called the Nanson running at the bottom of it separates the town from these hills. The eastern side of the mass of rock commands a view of the same landscape that the traveller enjoys from the top of La Pellerine. The only prospect from the western side is along the tortuous valley of the Nanson. But there is one spot whence it is possible to see a segment of the great circle formed by the main valley as well as the picturesque windings of the smaller one that opens out into it. Here the townspeople had elected to make a promenade. Hither Mademoiselle de Vernoy was betaking herself, and this very place was to be the stage on which the drama begun at the Vivetiere was to be carried out. However picturesque, therefore, the other parts of the town of Fougere may be, attention must be exclusively directed to the disposition of the country that is visible from the highest point of the promenade. To give an idea of the appearance of the rock of Fougere when seen from this side, a comparison might be made between it and one of those huge towers about which Saracen architects have fashioned tier after tier of balconies, connected each with each by spiral staircases. The topmost point of the rock terminates in a Gothic church with its crockets, spire, and buttresses, which completes the almost perfect sugar-loaf form of the whole. Before the door of this church, which is dedicated to St. Léonard, lies a little irregularly shaped square. The soil there is banked up and sustained by a wall that runs round it like a balustrade, and it communicates with the promenade by a flight of steps. This esplanade runs round about the rock like a second cornice, several fathoms below the square of St. Léonard, presenting an open space planted with trees which is brought to an end by the fortifications of the town. Then, after a further interval of some ten fathoms of rocks and masonry which support this terrace, thanks partly to the fortunate disposition of the schist and partly to patient industry, there lies a winding road called the Queen's Staircase, cut out of the rock itself, and leading to a bridge built over the Nanson by Anne of Brittany. Underneath this road again, which makes a third cornice, the gardens slope in terraces down to the river, looking like tiers of staging covered with flowers. Lofty crags, called the hills of Saint-Sulpice, after the name of the suburb of the town in which they rise, run parallel with the promenade and along the riverside. 
their sides slope gently down into the main valley wherein they take a sharp turn towards the north these steep dark and barren crags seem almost to touch the schistous rock of the promenade coming in some places within a gunshot of them and they shelter from the north wind a narrow valley some hundred fathoms in depth wherein the nonson divides itself into three streams and waters a meadowland pleasantly laid out and filled with houses to the south just where the town properly speaking comes to an end and the suburb of st leonard begins the rock of fougere makes a curve grows less lofty and precipitous turns into the main valley and stretches along the river which is thus shut in between it and the hills of st sulpice in a narrow pass thence the river flows in two streams towards the coenon into which it falls this picturesque range of rocky hillsides is named the nido croc the dale which is shut in by them is called the valley of gibari and its rich meadows produce a large proportion of the butter known to epicures as prevalet butter at the spot where the promenade abuts upon the fortifications a tower rises called the Papagos tower the house in which mademoiselle de verneuil was staying was built upon this square structure beyond this point there is nothing but a sheer space sometimes of wall sometimes of rock wherever the latter presents a smooth surface the portion of the town that is built upon this lofty and impregnable base describes an immense half-moon at the termination of which the rocks slope away and are hollowed out so as to give an outlet to the nonson here stands the gate of saint sulpice through which the way lies into the suburb that bears the same name on a knoll of granite rock commanding the entrance into three valleys wherein several roads converge rise the ancient crenellated turrets of the feudal castle of fougere one of the most considerable structures erected by the dukes of brittany with its walls fifteen fathoms high and fifteen feet thick on its eastern side the castle is protected by a pond in which the nonson rises flowing thence through the moats and turning several mills between the gate of saint sulpice and the drawbridges of the fortress on the western side the perpendicular rocks on which the castle is built form a sufficient defence thus from the promenade to this magnificent relic of the middle ages adorned with its mantling ivy and its turrets round or square in any one of which a whole regiment might be quartered the castle the town and its rock protected by a curtain of wall or by scarps hewn in the rock itself form one immense horseshoe surrounded by precipices on the sides of which time aiding them the bretons have beaten out a few narrow footpaths blocks of stone project here and there as if by way of decoration or water oozes out through crannies where spindling trees are growing 
Further on, a few less precipitous slabs of granite support a little grass which attracts the goats, and the heather grows everywhere, penetrating many a damp crevice and covering the dark broken surface with its rosy wreaths. In the depth of this great funnel, the little river twists and winds in a land of meadow, always carpeted with soft verdure. At the foot of the castle there rises, between several masses of granite, the church, dedicated to Saint-Sulpice, which gives its name to the suburb on the other side of the Nansan. This suburb seems to lie in the bottom of an abyss. The pointed steeple of its church is not as high as the rocks that seem ready to fall down upon it and its surrounding cottages, which are picturesquely watered by certain branches of the Nansan, shaded by trees and adorned with gardens. These make an irregular indentation in the half-moon described by the promenade, the town, and the castle, and their details are in quaint contrast to the sober-looking amphitheatre which they confront. The whole town of Fougeres, with its churches and its suburbs, and even the hills of Saint-Sulpice, has for its frame and setting the heights of Rouillet, which form a part of the chain of hills that encircle the main valley of the Couenon. Such are the most striking natural features of this country. Its principal characteristic is a rugged wildness softened by intervals of smiling land, by a happy mingling of the most magnificent works of man with the caprices of a soil vexed by unlooked-for contrasts, and an indescribable something that takes us at unawares, that amazes and overawes us. In no other part of France does the traveller meet with contrasts on so magnificent a scale as in this wide valley of the Couenon, and among the dales that are almost hidden between the craggy rocks of Fougeres and the heights of Rillet. There is beauty of a rare kind in which chance is the predominating element, but which, for all that, lacks no charm due to the harmony of nature here are clear limpid rushing streams hills clad in the luxuriant vegetation of these districts stern masses of rock and shapely buildings natural fortifications and towers of granite built by man here are all the effects wrought by the play of light and shadow all the varied hues of different kinds of foliage so highly valued by artists groups of houses alive with a busy population, and solitary places, where the granite scarcely affords a hold to the pale lichens that cling about stone surfaces. Here, in short, is every suggestion of beauty or of dread that can be looked for from a landscape, a poetry full of constantly renewed magic, of pictures of the grandest kind and charming scenes of country life here is brittany in its flower the papago's tower as it is called upon which the house occupied by mademoiselle de vernoy was built 
has its foundations at the very bottom of the precipice and rises to the level of the esplanade which has been constructed cornice fashion in front of saint leonard's church the view from this house which is isolated on three of its sides includes the great horseshoe which has its starting point in the tower itself the winding valley of the Nonson, and the square of saint leonard the dwelling is one of a row of houses three centuries old built of wood and lying in a parallel line with the north side of the church in such a manner as to form a blind alley with it the alley opens on to a steep road that passes along one side of the church and leads to the gate of saint leonard towards which mademoiselle de verneuil was descending marie naturally felt no inclination to go up into the square before the church beneath which she was standing so she turned in the direction of the promenade when she had passed through the little green-painted barrier which stood before the guard-house now established in the tower of saint leonard's gate the conflict within her was stilled by the sight of the wonderful view she first admired the wide stretch of the main valley of the Couenon. the whole length and breadth of it met her eyes from the summit of la pelerine to the level plain through which the road runs to vitre then her gaze rested upon the nido croc upon the winding lines of the valley of gibari and upon the ridges of the hills bathed as they were in the glow of the misty sunset the depth of the valley of the nonson almost startled her the tallest poplars down below scarcely reached the height of the garden walls that lay beneath the queen's staircase on she went one marvel still succeeding to another till she reached a point whence she could see the main valley beyond the dale of gibari and the whole lovely landscape was framed by the horseshoe of the town the crags of saint-sulpice and the heights of Riez. at that hour of day the smoke rising from the houses in the suburbs and the valleys made wreaths of cloud in the atmosphere every object dawned on the sight through a sort of bluish canopy the garish daylight hues had begun to fade the tone of the sky changed to a pearly gray the moon flung its misty light over the depths of the fair land below all the surroundings tended to steep the soul in musings and to call memories of beloved forms suddenly she lost all interest in the shingle roofs of the suburb of saint-sulpice in its church with the bold spire that was all but swallowed up by the depths of the valley in the ivy and clematis that had grown for centuries over the walls of the old fortress whence the nonson issues boiling over its mill-wheels and in all else in the landscape in vain the sunset poured a golden dust and sheets of crimson light over the peaceful dwellings scattered among the rocks along the stream and in the meadows far below she was staring fixedly at the crags of saint-sulpice the wild hope that had brought her out upon the promenade had been miraculously 
realized. Across the ajoncs and the bushes of broom that grew along the tops of the opposite hillsides, she thought that, in spite of their goatskin clothing, she could recognize several of the guests at the vivetiere. The gars was conspicuous among them. His slightest movements stood out against the soft glow of the sunset. Some paces behind the principal group, she saw her formidable enemy, Madame de Gois. For a moment Mademoiselle de Vernoy might have thought that she was dreaming, but her rival's hatred very soon made it plain to her that everything in this dream had life. The rapt attention with which she was watching every slightest gesture on the part of the Marquis prevented her from noticing the care with which Madame de Gouin was aiming a rifle at her. The echoes of the hills rang with the report, and a ball whistling close to Marie revealed her rival's skill to her. "'She is sending me her card,' she exclaimed, smiling to herself. In a moment there was a cry in chorus of, "'Who goes there?' echoed by sentinel after sentinel, all the way from the castle to St. Leonard's Gate, which made the Shuans aware of the precautions taken by the Fougeret, since the least vulnerable side of their ramparts was so well guarded. "'It is she, and it is he,' said Marie to herself. With the speed of lightning, the idea of seeking, tracking, and surprising the Marquis flashed across her. I have no weapon, she exclaimed. She bethought herself that just as she was leaving Paris, she had thrown into a trunk an elegant dagger, a thing that had once belonged to a sultan. She had provided herself with it when she set out for the scene of the war, in the same humor that prompts some amusing beings to equip themselves with notebooks in which to jot down the ideas that occur to them upon a journey. She had been less attracted, however, by the prospect of bloodshed than by the mere pleasure of carrying a beautiful jeweled kanjar, and of playing with the blade as clean as an eye-glance. Three days ago, when she had sought to kill herself to escape her rival's hideous revenge, she had keenly regretted leaving this weapon in her trunk. In a moment she reached the house again, found the dagger, thrust it into her belt, muffled a great shawl round about her shoulders, wound a black lace scarf about her hair, covered her head with a large, flapping hat, like those worn by the Shuans, which she borrowed from a servant about the house, and with the self-possession which the passions sometimes bestow, she took up the glove belonging to the Marquis, which Marcia Terre had given to her as a safe conduct. In response to Francine's alarmed inquiries, she replied, what would you have? I would go to hell to look for him. And she went back to the promenade. The gars was still there in the same place, but he was alone. From the direction taken by his perspective glass, he appeared to be scrutinizing with a soldier's minute attention 
the various fords of the nonson the queen's staircase and the road that starts from the gate of saint sulpice winds by the church and joins the high road within range of the guns of the castle mademoiselle de vernoy sprang down the narrow paths made by the goatherds and their flocks upon the slopes of the promenade gained the queen's staircase reached the foot of the crags crossed the nonson passed through the suburb found her way instinctively like a bird in the desert among the perilous scarped rocks of saint sulpice and very soon reached a slippery track over the granite boulders in spite of the bushes of broom the thorny ajoncs and the sharp loose stones she began to climb with an amount of energy unknown perhaps in man but which woman when completely carried away by passion possesses for a time night overtook marie just as she reached the summit and tried to discover by the pale moonlight the way which the marquis must have taken it was a search made persistently but without any success from the silence that prevailed throughout the region she gathered that the shuans and their leader had retired she suddenly relinquished the effort begun in passion along with the hope that had inspired it she found herself benighted and alone in the midst of a strange country where war was raging she began to reflect and hulot's warning and madame de goise's shot made her shudder with fear the silence of night upon the hills was so deep that she could hear the least rustle of a wandering leaf even a long way off such faint sounds as these trembling in the air gave a gloomy idea of the utter solitude and quiet the wind blew furiously in the sky above bringing up clouds that cast shadows below the effects of alternate light and darkness increased her fears by giving a fantastic and terrifying appearance to objects of the most harmless kind she turned her eyes towards the houses in fougere the lights of every household glimmered like stars on earth and all at once she descried the papago tower the distance she must traverse in order to reach her dwelling was short indeed but that distance consisted of a precipice she had a sufficiently clear recollection of the abysses at the brink of the narrow footpath by which she had come to see that she would incur greater peril by trying to return to fougere than by continuing her enterprise she reflected that the marquis's glove would deprive her nocturnal excursion of all its dangers if the shuans should be in possession of the country she had only madame de goin to dread at the thought of her marie clutched her dagger and tried to go in the direction of a house of the roofs of which she had caught a glimpse as she reached the crags of saint sulpice she made but slow progress 
Never before had she known the majesty of darkness that oppresses a solitary being at night in the midst of a wild country, over which the mountains, like a company of giants, seem to bow their lofty heads. The rustle of her dress, caught by the gorse, made her tremble more than once. More than once she quickened her pace, only to slacken it again with the thought that her last hour had come. But circumstances very soon assumed a character which might perhaps have daunted the boldest men, and which threw Marie into one of those panics that make such heavy demands upon the springs of life within us, that everything, strength as weakness, is exaggerated in the individual. The weakest natures at such times show an unexpected strength, and the strongest grow frantic with terror. Marie heard strange sounds at a little distance. They were vague and distinct at the same time, just as the surrounding night was lighter and darker by turns. They seemed to indicate tumult and confusion. She strained her ears to catch them. They rose from the depths of the earth, which appeared to be shaking with the tramp of a great multitude of men on the march. A momentary gleam of light allowed Mademoiselle de Vernoy to see, at the distance of a few paces, a long file of horrid forms swaying like ears of corn in the fields, stealing along like goblin shapes. But hardly had she seen them when darkness, like a black curtain, fell again and hid from her this fearful vision full of yellow and glittering eyes. She shrank back and rushed swiftly to the top of a slope to escape three of these horrible figures who were approaching her. Did you see him? asked one. I felt a cold wind when he passed near me, a hoarse voice replied. I myself breathed the dank air and the smell of a graveyard, said a third. How pale he is, the first speaker began. Why has he returned alone out of all who fell at La Pellerine? asked the second. Ah, why indeed, replied the third. Why should those who belong to the sacred heart have the preference? However, I would rather die unconfessed than wander about as he does, neither eating nor drinking, without any blood in his veins or flesh on his bones. Ah! This exclamation, or rather fearful yell, broke from one of the group as one of the Chouans pointed to the slender form and pallid face of Mademoiselle de Vernoy, who was flying with the speed of fear, while none of them caught the slightest sound of her movements. There he is, here he is, where is he? There, here, he has vanished. No, yes, do you see him? The words rolled out like the monotonous sound of waves upon the beach. Mademoiselle de Vernoy went on bravely towards the house and saw the dim figures of a crowd, which fled away at her approach with every sign of panic-stricken fear. 
a strange force within her seemed to urge her on its influence was overpowering her a sensation of corporeal lightness which she could not understand was a fresh source of terror to her the shapes which rose in masses at her approach as if from under the earth where they appeared to be lying gave groans which seemed to have nothing human about them at last and not without difficulty she reached a garden now lying waste with all its fencing and hedges broken down she showed her glove to a sentinel who stopped her the moonlight fell upon her form and at the sight the sentinel who had pointed his carbine at marie let the weapon fall from his hand uttering a hoarse cry that rang through the country round about she saw large masses of buildings with a light here and there which showed that some of the rooms were inhabited and without further let or hindrance she reached the wall of the house through the first window towards which she went she beheld madame de Gouas and the chiefs who had come together at the vivetiere this sight combined with the consciousness of the peril she was in made her reckless she flung herself violently upon a low opening covered with massive iron bars and discerned the marquis two paces distant from her melancholy and alone in a long vaulted hall the reflections of the firelight from the hearth before which he was sitting in a cumbrous chair lighted up his face with flickering hues of red that made the whole scene look like a vision the poor girl strained herself to the bars trembling but otherwise motionless she hoped that she should hear him if he spoke in the deep silence that prevailed she saw him looking pale dejected and disheartened she flattered herself that she was one of the causes of his melancholy and her anger turned to sympathy and sympathy to tenderness she suddenly felt that it was not vengeance alone that had drawn her thither the marquis rose to his feet turned his head and stood bewildered when he beheld mademoiselle de vernoy's face as in a cloud there he made a sign of scorn and impatience as he cried must i see that she-devil always before me even in my waking hours this intense contempt he had conceived for her drew a frenzied laugh from the poor girl the young chief shuddered at it and sprang to the window mademoiselle de vernoy fled she heard a man's footsteps behind her and took her pursuer for montauran in her desire to escape from him she discerned no obstacles she would have scaled walls or flown through the air she could have taken the road to hell if so be she might read no longer in letters of flame the words he scorns you written upon his forehead words which a voice repeated within her in trumpet tones after walking on she knew not whither she stopped for a chilly dampness seemed to strike through her she heard the footsteps of several people and impelled by fear 
she descended a staircase that led into an underground cellar. As she reached the lowest step, she listened for the footsteps of the pursuers, trying to ascertain their direction. But though the sounds without were turbulent enough, she could hear the lamentable groans of a human being within, which added to her terrors. A streak of light from the head of the staircase led her to fear lest her hiding place had been discovered by her persecutors. Her desire to escape them lent her fresh strength. A few moments later, when her ideas were more collected, she found it very difficult to explain the way in which she had contrived to scramble up the low wall on the top of which she was hiding. At first she did not even notice the cramp which her constrained position caused her to experience. But the pain at last grew intolerable, for under the arch of the vault she was much in the position of a crouching Venus ensconced by some amateur in too narrow a niche. The wall itself was built of granite and fairly broad. It separated the staircase from the cellar whence the groans were issuing. She soon saw a stranger clad in goatskins, come down the staircase beneath her, and turn under the archway without the least sign about him to indicate an excited surge. In her eagerness to discover any chance of saving herself, Mademoiselle de Vernoy waited anxiously till the cellar was illuminated by the light which the stranger was carrying. Then she beheld, on the floor, a shapeless but living mass, trying to drag itself towards a certain part of the wall by violent and repeated jerks, like the convulsive writhings of a carp that has been drawn from the river and laid on the bank. End of section 16